Hi everyone, welcome to the Prime U, a series of interviews with top business and technology experts. Today we are delighted to welcome Paul Zikopoulos, who is Vice President of IBM Technology Group. Also, if you use IBM software products, you probably read his books as he authored 21 books all on database analytics and cloud. In 2019, Paul was named to the list of top influencers in AI and big data. Also, he sits in the board of several organizations, among them is Women 2.0, organization that helps uh, startup companies founded by women to get funded. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I like your horses. My daughter is a champion horseback rider. Those look like Hanoverians. She has yeah. a purebred variant, so... Uh. Oh, yeah. I actually, I could guess that you love horses because I saw that video where you transformed your daughter's horse into zebra using AI. My daughter didn't think it was very cool, but oh, well, what are you going to do, right? <laughs> are you also a fan of horseback riding? I ride, but I'm not a fan. I do it because my daughter loves it. I mean, she's competed at the provincial level in Canada for years. She's in shows. It's like the most expensive sport you could imagine. So, uh, but we have our, our own horse. His name's Einstein. He's a purebred Hanoverian. He's like 17 too. But uh, I said to my daughter, if we get a horse and I'm going to name his show name, because when you compete, you have a name, but then you have a nickname. So I named that horse better than a boyfriend. So when Chloe goes into the ring, they say now coming into the ring, Chloe's accomplice riding better than a boyfriend. So oh. anyways, that's my little bit of creativity genius right there. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great name for a horse. You also do golfing, right? I saw some videos with you and your father on the golf course and where you were trying really hard uh, to get the score. Uh, yeah, I guess I just golfed yesterday. Sometimes I look like I'm good and sometimes I don't look like I know what I'm doing. But one cool thing was, uh, because I have such a large social following, I think like my last post may have got half a million views, but last year during COVID, this is kind of interesting because COVID is horrific in so many ways. I try to find a silver lining. I started golfing with my dad every Tuesday afternoon. My dad's 85 at the time. He's 86 now. He still golfs. That's probably the video that you saw. And I spent more time with my dad in during COVID than I have in a decade. Well, anyways, I was recording these videos because he does these Greek dances if I get a birdie or an eagle. So I started posting them. They started getting all these kinds of views retweeted. So a company named Squares uh, Golf, they make shoes, amazing golf company, uh, great shoes, sponsored my dad uh, oh. and sent him a pair of shoes because of the good vibes. And uh, yeah, so I felt that that was kind of interesting, so. Yeah, so Paul, about your career, right? Almost three decades at IBM, right? So maybe you could share with our listeners a bit more about the, your career trajectory and your current responsibilities at the organization. Yeah, so it's really interesting. I'll start with my responsibilities and I'll talk about my progression. My responsibilities now is I lead skills vitality for our technology sales division. So it's really about how do we upskill and keep, you know, tech years are like dog years. So skills are always changing, right? How do we keep at the forefront of skills, which is a differentiator for providers in today's kind of digital economy? So I lead that program there. 
my journey is really interesting. I mean, I come to IBM, I, it will be my 29th year coming anytime in the next couple of weeks. So it's a long time, very rare to spend that much time on a company. I think it speaks volumes to how proud I am of IBM, actually. So I come out of university, I have an undergrad and economics degree in business. So I've never taken a computer course in my life. I get a job at IBM in uh, the ID department. So being a technical writer, I'm not even a good writer, to be honest. I just needed a job. And I get into this lab environment where you just get to learn all the time. You have to work, but you learn all the time. So then I start to learn user-centered design. Then I start to learn programming. So I'm teaching myself this kind of stuff. Then I move into OM. Then I go into the field. So I've been in offering management, development, uh, done some marketing, competitive sales, skills. I've done all this kind of stuff, having never a background in anything. And I think that that secret uh, has to do with this kind of learning never ends paradigm. So that is what's behind my career is I think two things is I always learn because things are always changing and I have grit. I may not be the best at anything, but I will always try my hardest to be the best. And I think that uh, for whatever pothole or mountain my career is to other people, that's the secret to, to, those, uh, to that success. Yeah, so with all of this, right, with all the responsibilities that you have, with so many things uh, that you have on your plate, how do you actually manage the risk of burnout? Yeah, uh, that's interesting. You know, there's times in my life where I felt near burnt out, right? I mean, I would say being at IBM for that many years is like being in a successful marriage uh, for 28 years. It's not always going to be perfect. You know, I travel every week. And one of the most interesting things I realized when I stopped traveling with COVID was when I'm home full time, I'm not nearly as charming to my wife, Kelly, as I thought I was. So, you know, you'll always have like ebbs and flows, but way more highs. I'll tell you what has kept me from the burnout. And when I was getting close to burning out, what was going wrong? I love what I do. And so I always tell folks, whether they're new hires, whether you're an executive, whether you're trying to become executive, you really got to look at what do you want out of your career? I actually ask people, to write it down on a piece of paper. Ironically, I have it right here. And these are, how do you wanna order these things? Do you wanna make the most money that you can possible? Do you want a fancy title, like a VP or general manager, right? Do you wanna love what you do? Do you want career progression or personal growth? Uh, and do you want work-life balance? Those five things, put them in order. And there should be no shame in the order they're in. And over the course of your life, those are going to change. When I put, title and money at the top of my values list, I was burning out because I was doing a job I hated that paid more. Today, I have that kind of balance. And every now and again, I go to my wife and I'm like, well, how come I'm not doing this job? She's like, listen, idiot, go put out your list. And I keep it right in the drawer. And I look at it and it's the hint that I give to everybody. That's how you avoid burnout. You can't love every moment of your job. You have to hate 20% of your job, okay? That's life, right? There's things I don't like to do in my job. But if you have a passion, and I clearly have a passion around learning and technology, that is what pushes off the burnout and kind of gives you that wind in your back to achieve. That is very interesting. You know, like probably you, you see this um, a lot in the industry that 
very often people will switch from company to company um, in every couple of years, right? Trying to find that flame and something that ignites right, uh, them um, about the, the work, right, or the projects that they are doing. And here you're talking about this balance, and I think that's uh, remarkably important. Yeah, and you know, Paul, uh, on your background, I can see the, the cover of the la your latest book, The AI Letter. And since, you know, we, we started communicating, right, by uh, uh, email, I got this question, how did you manage to write 21 books, being vice president and having so many things on your plate? Because what I believe is like writing that many books on technology, it's a full-time job for several people, not one person. So if you could share with us, uh, what, what, how do you do that, right? And the second question is about the, exactly this book that you have uh, behind you. What is it... Uh, specifically in that book that you have covered that many organizations and many of our listeners might find interesting. Yeah, so that's the AI Ladder that came out last year. I have a new book. It's literally coming out next week uh, called Cloud Without Compromise, both by O'Reilly. Um, so I'll answer a couple of those questions you had. The first question is, how the heck do you write 21 books? Where do you find that time, right? Um, I think there's a couple of things in there. Uh, first, I got to tell you, I said at the start, I wasn't, I'm not a very good writer. So my goal is to write one really crappy page of writing every day for a book, right? If I write one to two pages that are really bad writing, but get my thoughts out, I'm on my way. That's number one. Uh, number two is I obviously love what I do, right? So it's a hobby to learn. And I've always found that when you teach, two people learn. So I wrote the book Hadoop for Dummies, for example. I knew nothing about Hadoop. Uh, but I knew how to learn. And by writing for other people to learn about Hadoop, I learned about Hadoop. I knew AI, but I became great at AI because I wrote that book. So when one teaches, two people learn. I think uh, a little trick that I do uh, is I kind of make slides when I give presentations and I always script the slides underneath, eloquently script them. And a lot of people don't do that. They just kind of throw, here's a slide. But in my mind, every time I present, I'm creating a storyline. And then I compose those storylines to create a book. That's how I've written 21 books. All right. So what is this book about in Cloud Without Compromise? They're not practitioner books. I'm not going to teach you how to do regularization or uh, things like that, right? It's if you want to learn deep, deep AI stuff and how to be a practitioner, that's not the book for you. That's actually a business book. And so is Cloud Without Compromise. They're meant for people who need to get savvy around AI or cloud, but lead businesses and need to understand the technology. And so in the AI ladder, if you can imagine the word ladder is that's what it's about. It's about these rungs that you climb to get to AI, because I feel like there's four progressions there, right? You collect data, you organize data, you analyze it, and then you have to infuse the AI across the company. So that is a strategy of how to get to successful AI. Because I'll tell you what, 80% of AI projects fail. And we saw that in the Hadoop craze, 80, 90% of Hadoop data lake, big data implementations failed. And so I wrote that book in the other book so that projects don't fail. So you go beyond the hype. 
Yeah, you know, I've just started reading the book and there is one quote that I really liked. Uh, and th that is that now organizations are data rich, but information poor, meaning that organization, most organizations know how to collect data. What is the missing part is the interpretation and analysis of the data. So maybe you could share with us how can organizations, enterprises tackle that issue of interpreting the data and getting the value of all the data, terabytes of data that they have managed to collect. Yeah, it's very interesting. And you hit right on the, uh, right on the problem for organizations. We're really good at data collection. So if our data collection is this good, our data understanding is here, then in between is what we call the price of not knowing. Right. That's what we talked about in the book. Uh, and that is where organizations can achieve. Uh, maybe it's better population health outcomes. Maybe it's better profits, lower attrition, whatever it is. It's in that that area. And like I'll share a, a story with you, which is to me fascinating. And it so perfectly illustrates the point. Uh, so Stevie Wonder, I'm sure you know who Stevie Wonder is, the singer. I'm sure you know he's blind, um, but not everybody knows why he's blind. He's blind because of something called ROP, the retinopathy of prematurity. So when you're a, needle, a neonatal baby, so you're a preemie baby, you go into the NICU, the neonatal ICU, and they do all kinds of things, obviously, to keep you alive during, these, uh, just during this area where you're very fragile. One of the things they do is oxygenation. So you can imagine we show oxygenation to the baby, that helps the baby live, but it can burn the back of the retina out. And when you take measurements the way they used to, they always collected the data uh, quickly, you know, a thousand times a second, but you only analyze the data every 15 minutes or half hour in the ward if there was an out of bound reading. But when you started to analyze the data a thousand times a second, you would see much different oscillations in the oxygenation rates in the incubator. And that's why Stevie Wonder's blind. That was the price of not knowing for Stevie Wonder. I could go give you the price of not knowing for trail derailment, a train derailment with a train. So I just find that really interesting is when you get down and you analyze the data, understanding it, we were collecting it, not understanding it. How do you get there? It is a culture-driven transformation from the top. And the thing about culture is culture is what happens when nobody's looking. So I have yet to meet an executive in IBM or outside in the clients I serve who say, yes, we're going to be analytics red, led, but when no one's looking, what are you doing? And so if the top of the office isn't aligned to analytics, then the next level and the next level will not be. So you need a renaissance that gets everyone together, marching to the same beat, and then a skill strategy to upskill people so that analytics becomes a part of our everyday job. And, and I always tell people, because people talk about AI, oh, is AI going to replace jobs? I actually think AI will be a net creator of jobs. Uh, it will replace many kind of rote mundane tasks. But this is what I do know. If you're a manager or a practitioner that uses AI or is comfortable with AI, you will replace those managers or practitioners that are not comfortable or don't use AI. That I can assure you. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point where AI is not there to replace human power, but rather to empower and enable it, right? And enterprises that will be able to leverage the technology and uh, will be proficient in using it um, are there to succeed. And at the top of that ladder is the infuse rung. And the infuse rung 
is about how to get it across your organization. So AI, when we say if you're use it or proficient, that doesn't mean that I am like, you know, a mid-level uh, business leader and I have to know how to build a convolutional neural network because CNN, that's what they use for computer vision. That's not what it means at all. But it means you're comfortable with AI that augments the work that you do and makes you better. I always believe humankind with machine is better than machine on its own and is better than humankind on its own. Well, yeah, obviously, AI is a hot topic across industries and across many domains. So where do you actually see the future of the technology? Yeah, you know, I think there's a corner in AI that nobody's looking around or they're, they're scared to look around because what they're going to find. So AI first was, you know, how do we build models quickly? And so we use hardware acceleration like GPUs and TPUs to build and score the models. I think I so or to build the models. I think that's key. Uh, and then we started building models. A lot of those models don't get to production. Some of them do. Here is the danger area of AI and where the next focus on AI is going to be. It is not about performance of AI anymore. Now, in the AI world, performance doesn't mean how fast. It means how accurate. Okay? So if I want the performance of a uh, visual uh, piece of AI that detects skin cancer like a melanoma, if it's 94% accurate, they call that 94% performance. What the key is going to be is around explainability. Accuracy is no longer enough. Just look at the social unrest of fairness in the world with bias and those types of things. We need to go and explain our AI. How did we arrive at this, this particular decision? Where did this data come from? What was done to the data? Because as it turns out, Dana, lots of our data is biased. It's been collected in a biased world. And if we codify that in AI, because AI isn't biased, AI just learns. It's stupid. It just learns the data you give it. If you give me biased data, I'm going to be biased. And I'll go back to that uh, melanoma detection algorithm that I talked about. So if you look at how we use AI to spot a melanoma, to look at attenuation changes and, and, and things like that, and think about this, in this world where everyone's taking these selfies and putting them on TikTok and Facebook, imagine attaching an algorithm to your Facebook that would scan a mold on your face, or maybe you just had your own app and you took a picture every month. We could detect these melanomas way earlier. Like, Because here's what I'll tell you, skin cancer is on a 30-year rise in the United States. And even if every person in the U.S. wanted to visit a dermatologist, they could There's not enough of them. And as it turns out, AI is about 93% inaccurate in looking at a mole and saying it's a melanoma. It actually can do as good as performance, if not better than a dermatologist. Why? It doesn't get tired. Why? It's not thinking about the weekend on Friday afternoon after looking at a scan. Now, here's the explainability part. The models that have built that incredible performance are all with white people. And as it turns out, Blacks, so white people have about a 90 plus percent, if you catch it early, survival rate of melanomas. Black people have about a 75%. It drops by 15%. But if all of the algorithm was trained on white skin, then how are we going to pick up those anomalies on black skin? That's a great example of what data am I using? Even when it's for social good, we have to understand the lineage of the data. That's explainability. Why did I deny you a loan? Why did I determine this? These are critical for AI to truly take off. 
yeah, I know that IBM is a big proponent and contributor to open source software. So in your opinion, what is the most impactful and the most important open source software right now? I don't want to give you the technology that I think is most impactful because it could turn out to be wrong in a couple of years, right? Someone's going to play this. Remember, anything that goes on the internet's there forever. But I will say, I do believe that Kubernetes, so K8, uh, and it is the core of hybrid cloud, uh, that is probably one of the biggest inflection points of open source that I've seen in my 28 years. I think that might be the biggest. It looked like Hadoop was going to be the biggest. It was like this, crashed. Spark like this and it's still there uh but kubernetes i've never seen something go like this and like that so i would say that that's it that's obviously what the book cloud without compromise talks a lot about kubernetes um but you know open source is a wonderful opportunity uh for all environments right because you know the the apache theme is let a thousand flowers bloom and so if we let all these flowers bloom, some are going to bloom more beautiful or prettier than others. And you have so many folks with ideas and innovation that come to a community. And so that is where I find open source. You know, if you ask me for other big projects, I think uh, the mean and the MERN stack, if you're a programmer, so MongoDB, open source database, huge, right? Express, JS, uh, Node.js, those types of things. So those are huge. So there's lots to mention, but I think K8s right now is it. The one thing I do say about open source is, I, I like to tell, tell people that open source, uh, it's like a free puppy. I can go and give you a free database, right? But you're probably going to need support. And I know if you try to go it alone, stuff can get very crazy in the open source world. Suddenly someone changes a package and it breaks. And that works fine in a project room in dev, but it doesn't work fine when you're running an enterprise. So what I think the model I'm seeing, which I like, is kind of embrace, sustain, and extend around open source. So adopt open source, core to your offerings, provide services and expertise with committers around that to be your ally on the open source journey. I don't recommend that people run the open source route on their own. I think you're always better off with a partner in the open source community, no matter what open source technology you're using. But uh, definitely revamp the world from 15 years ago when it was very much proprietary. Even in IBM, we embed open source in all kinds of our technologies from our explainability open scale to some of our data transformation tooling that uses Spark. So yeah, open source is a uh, thumbs up. remarkably interesting. You know, I had several interviews where um, experts from different domains and different industries, they all agreed that open source software is critically important to their organizations to be able to innovate and also to deliver their products and their solution to the market at a faster pace. Yeah, so on to the next question, which is about coronavirus impact on the industry and the business. Could you please share with our listeners your personal perspective, your professional perspective on how the pandemic has affected uh, your industry? Yeah, so, um, you know, I wrote an article uh, when the pandemic first came out called Thrivers, Divers, and the New Arrivers. And I thought what the pandemic did for business was a huge wake-up call. So as it turned out, businesses weren't nearly as digitally transformed as they thought. And some big names, which I won't mention here, were absolutely
absolutely embarrassing. Like here I'm trying to figure out where's my order status and I'm on hold for three hours. Another one I went and you remember the rush with toilet paper, right? So I go online, I order some toilet paper. It says it's coming. I walk by my Costco in person. There's toilet paper there. I don't buy it because I don't want to hoard toilet paper. And then all of a sudden, two days later, your order could not be fulfilled. It's canceled. This is pathetic, right? And so I think it was a wake-up call. And the companies that were agile and that were modernized, they soared. And even companies you wouldn't think so, like a company like Michael's Craft Store. Michael's Craft Store, within two weeks of store shutting down, had a fully integrated curbside pickup experience. Meanwhile, some of these big conglomerates were falling on their faces. So where are we today coming out of the pandemic? I realize we're in the face of the fourth wave, but with vaccination, we have better control, at least in North America. Um, I think it's the realization that your journey to digitization just aged by a decade, right? Like you aged by a decade and now companies realize it's not enough to talk about it. You've got to do it. So I'm seeing budgets opening up for the transformation because of COVID, because whatever world we're in, someone say when we get back to normal, I don't know if this is the new normal or the new abnormal, even without COVID, you have to be digitized. And companies figured out that their inventory systems, order entry, delivery, customer service, they're different. They might as well be different companies. They don't, they don't talk to each other. And that's what I'm seeing. That's the biggest takeaway that, uh, that you can get from, from COVID for businesses, absolutely. So do you feel there is any impact on enterprises and their ability to innovate long-term? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think people are still getting their hands around how can I innovate long-term? Like their ability to innovate long-term, I don't know if that's the right way to phrase it because the ability will be related to skills, for example. But I would say there incessant need to remain focused long term right so it's no different like if you have a nice lawn and you don't tend to it for two weeks you're gonna have weeds everywhere so i think people are tending to their lawns their digital transformation strategy in a different way it's in the c the c-suite office and that's the discussion point so this isn't something you take your eye off and, I, and companies learn the hard way if they do that they're going to suffer Well, IBM has so many technologies and so many solutions available. And I was thinking about the challenges for your sales and technical pre-sales people. And since it's part of your responsibilities, right? Part of the organization that you are driving and you are building, maybe you could share with our listeners, how do you build efficient skill management and education system within the large enterprise? Yeah, I mean, uh, listen, we could talk for a whole hour on that one. Uh, There's areas where I've been really successful, especially in a large company like IBM. And there's areas where, you know, we're struggling, but we're going to climb that mountain. I suspect all companies are facing this. I will tell you, no matter what program you have, it starts with the individuals you hire. I'll start with that. And it is the art, uh, art of curiosity. So I think, uh, do you know the movie A Star is Born with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper? Do you know this movie, right? So uh, for those who don't know it, Bradley Cooper is this kind of, famous country singer and uh, he meets this Lady Gaga in a bar and gets her on stage and whatever. Okay. Then this, a star is born. That's the point. So Bradley Cooper is one of the most successful actors in all of Hollywood, right? Big ticket, whatever. 
What people don't know about that movie is Lady Gaga has said, Bradley Cooper, you have to do everything live. You have to sing, you have to play the piano, anything you do in the movie, you can't fake it. We're not lip syncing here, we're not faking it. So this guy spent three and a half years taking singing lessons, guitar playing lessons, piano lessons, voice coaching, to prepare for a movie, which is a remake by the way, that they filmed in 42 days. So let me just start with that. If Bradley Cooper spends three and a half years to deliver a star performance on screen, what do you think us mere mortals have to do? So what we'll be doing is every single day we'll be learning. So when I look at talent acquisition, I always look for curiosity. I feel my own experience is proof that I can learn anything. It's all about grit and determination. So then once we kind of attract the right people and we use different hooks in the universities, we have programs we call P-TECH, which are, uh, we call it like a six-year high school degree, but you leave with a college diploma, all focused on tech, reaching out into groups, be them underserved or ubiquitous groups, you know, focused on, some focused on women, some focused in, in other areas. So kind of create this funnel where we try to bring in curious people. The attraction to IBM, I can tell you right now, uh, if you look at our business results, great two quarters, we've returned to growth. But if you look at the last 10 years, like, I'll be honest, it's been a struggle for the company in some of our transformation. But I'll tell you, when you attract a curious learner, they'll love IBM because there's so much to do. You want to learn about quantum physics, you'll learn about quantum physics. You want to learn about database, you want to learn about programming. That is one thing I can tell you is unparalleled in this company. You can learn from chip design, you name it. And that really attracts some good talent. So now we got the right people, they're curious. And now we have to bespoke learning. Some of it is general things. So the main themes right now, I think there's three key things uh, that are affecting every company. Hybrid cloud, cloud computing, AI. So those are two of the books I wrote. I bet you can guess my next book because it's security, right? Once I've done that, I feel I've written on the three key things. So we have to do mass education about those three things because those things help solve our clients' problems. Hybrid cloud gives you agility, digital transformation, helps me implement AI. Security, you can't turn a page without a hack going on. I think we just saw a hack the other day of a big, uh, of a big partner firm. Uh, and then we have to put a layer of what we'll call bespoke learning. In sales, that's going to be geared towards what you sell. If I'm a database and automation rep, then I have to create some bespoke learning on top of the key themes, but you still have to know some security. And then if I move into like, uh, development, well, what do I have to teach them about? So you start to look at those types of things. So it gets quite a messy, but I think it starts with curiosity of the base, right? Then it's the foundation for what makes you knowledgeable of what's required today, right? Even if you're not into AI, you better know about AI. You're in a technology company. Then we bespoke the learning. So you have the foundation of deep skills, certifications, those types of things. And then on top of that, we layer some of our go-to-markets uh, routes, you might call them sales plays. And this is where we've seen enormous success for customers or where the, we help them the most, for example, customer care uh, and the things we do there. So we'll put a learning plan together there. So that, that's a, a little snapshot. Yeah, these are very interesting. So Paul, is there anything that I maybe should have asked you but miss out? Um, no, you know, but I do, I do think of one thing. Um, Talent. I think this goes to what we just talked about on the upscale, right? Um, you're going to have to hire new talent, okay, to to take advantage of what's going on. 
but you're going to have to upskill your talent. Like, unless you're like Amazon or whatever, you're not going to have the money to just go out and hire all the best data scientists in the world. And they probably won't stay long enough. So that culture of learning and upskilling, uh, and it has to come with personal and professional reward, but you have to lift up the masses. And I think that's really critical. And one of the things I try to do, because I told you the most, the most important foundation to your future success is getting people that love to learn. Not because you're at IBM and Paul Zacopoulos said, you have to take this learning, right? This kind of beat you into learning bit. For anyone who thinks that they left uh, university and they didn't have to learn again, the learning starts after school and it better not stop. And I tell you, I've managed people who have reached executive titles that fell from grace. You know what they did? They stopped learning. They stopped being excited. That's why it goes back to those five value systems I talked about. But I think one way that you can really compete, whether you're trying to build a diverse workforce, uh, which you should be, whether you're trying to bring in curious people, is to go out of the norms. So the norms might be, I go to a recruitment agency, here we have talent acquisition at IBM, we get to the universities, and we find some great talent. But when you find the impeccable talent is when you take it on yourself to talk about your ethos and culture. So I do that on LinkedIn, that's how we met, or I do that in speeches, and people end up following me. And in those followers, I'm like, why don't you come and work for us? And that was my, for my division, I bet you 30% of my hires happen that way. It's my secret ingredient and I shared it with all of you. Get involved in the communities that you want to serve. Women 2.0, I'm gonna meet a lot of entrepreneurial women, aren't I, right? So uh, I think you get the point. Well, yeah, absolutely. Paul, as we're getting to the end of the conversation, I want to thank you for your time and for your energy. I actually could feel it across the screen. Yeah, and for your valuable insight and um, information. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Great. It's been a pleasure. And I tell everybody uh, forever stay positive and test negative. So remember, <laughs> health is wealth, right? So Absolutely. good day to you all.